This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, loyal Radio Motherboard listeners. This is your host, Jason Kebler, and I am very proud to announce that Radio Motherboard has been nominated for a Webby Award. Um, we need your vote and support, so if you want to support us, you can go to vote.webbyawards.com. We are under the podcast and digital audio technology section. And here is this week's episode. So uh, welcome to another episode of Radio Motherboard. I'm Jason Kebler and I'm joined with Emmanuel Myberg. Hello. And I have Kenneth Goldsmith in our studio. Kenneth, uh, I talked to you two years ago, three years ago now, I think, or almost three years ago, about a class that you were going to teach at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, can you tell us what that class is? Um, it is a class called Wasting Time on the Internet. And uh, I put a, a short description on the web and tweeted out, uh, I guess it was about three years ago or thereabouts, uh, my class running at University of Pennsylvania is called Wasting Time on the Internet and just, you know, kind of on a modest Twitter feed that I have. And it didn't, you know, it blew up in a nice way, but I began getting all sorts of responses, you can imagine, uh, from people uh, on Twitter, uh, outraged, uh, intrigued, uh, Actually, mostly outraged. I could get a PhD in that, many of them said. Uh, At any rate, uh, you uh, had uh, uh, messaged me uh, on Facebook and said, hey, let's do an interview. I'm sorry, on on Twitter. Said, let's do an interview. And I said, sure. And we did that. And you ran a piece. And that piece then, uh, I did another interview maybe the next day after that from the Washington Post. And between the two of those uh, stories, um, the whole idea of this class started to go really viral. Yeah, so I remember when we published that story, it was one of our best performing stories for quite a while. And I actually remember being kind of upset at the Washington Post because they did it after, and it seemed very similar to my story. And I don't want to like get into it, but at the time I was like mad that they sort of took it 
and I didn't think about it much after that, but then I read your book and you actually sort of mentioned that, like you mentioned that the Washington Post ran a story and then you stopped doing interviews. So tell me what happened next. Yeah, it's interesting to just watch this thing filter through uh, the ecosystem of media. Basically, since all media is cut and paste, uh, what other uh, journals were doing. First, very top-tier people. You guys are top-tier. And then sort of second-to-top-tier <laughs> second people. Really good places. Began taking your story and your interview and kind of um, stripping off the headline, adding a, a, a new headline and sort of a new opening paragraph and a new ending paragraph and calling it their own. Okay, so that, that was the second week, was sort of second-tier sites. The third week... That happened. The third tier media took the second tier's media, stripped their headline, added another paragraph, et cetera, et cetera, all the way down to probably about four or five weeks into it when it finally ended up saying that a guy named Kevin Goldberg was giving out PhDs and wasting time on the internet at Penn State University. So the whole thing became really warped in like a, a game of telephone. So we, can we talk a little bit about what students actually do in this sure. class and uh, what you talk about and like what assignments are and mm-hmm. stuff like that? Um, well, the first time I ran the class, um, my idea originally was that we were going to sit in a room, 15 of us, in a beautiful oak-paneled Ivy League uh, seminar room, I mean, really a beautiful 19th century classical room, and sit connected by a super f- high-speed uh, internet, and we were not going to talk to each other. All communication was going to happen online, on listservs, and they were going to be scraping the web to write great works of literature based on this, and we'd be sharing it around, not a word would be exchanged. And what ended up happening was about two or three weeks into it, it was a disaster. Nobody was talking. There was no energy in the class. I could see during cigarette breaks, students were just like completely listless. I've taught there for a long time. I've never seen a group of students this depressed. And I thought, oh, this something's not working. So I was trying to figure this out with my TA. And we're, we're, we're outside the room because there's really no teaching for me to do because I could teach outside the room because it was all in listservs. And suddenly, we heard all sorts of noise from the room. Now, there was not supposed to be any noise going on. And we walk into the room, and what's happening is everybody is up out of their seat dancing to Kia's My Neck, My Back, right? <laughs> and it is an amazing song. And every student is like up screaming wild. I'm like, what is going on here? Well, evidently, a girl had put out onto one of the listservs, uh, I have a writing prompt. Everybody um, play a song, and I'm going to listen and try to grab various lyrics and come up with an abstract poem based on lyrics, you know, 20 machines playing lyrics. I'm going to pluck those out of the air. But what happened was it was too cacophonous. So she put out another thing. She's saying, wait a minute, what if we all play the same song? Everybody cue up my neck, my back, and at the count of three, hit that, and then I'm going to listen to it. And of course, it was staggered. You know, it was like a Terry Riley mix or something like that. And, and suddenly, the class couldn't help it. They all started getting up and dancing. And from that moment on, I realized that the problem was that I wasn't allowing them to interact. Uh, they were, you know, they might as well have been in a Starbucks where together in a room, bodies in a room, could machines be a way of amplifying emotion and affect rather than 
suffocating them the way that we normally think they are. From that time on, the whole class changed. They began doing these big group activities with the machines in the center and the bodies in the room, and the whole thing just became like a giant game of twister. The machine would tell us what to do, and we'd do it, and kind of, you know, my nose would end up in somebody's crotch. But, you know, it was okay. Nobody was offended because the machine would tell you to do that. And it became like an encounter group. It became like some kind of new age thing, an internet cult in a strange way. And we started doing some pretty edgy stuff. So I feel like this, these sorts of experiments and these sorts of games definitely tell us something about how we interact with each other and with technology. But do you feel like it got ever got away from the idea of how we interact with the internet, like how we waste time on the internet as individual beings? Well, um, it was interesting. Uh, I think that's a complicated question. So I'll take it this way. Um, what was posed as wasted time, and I thought the wasted time was really the time that they were not talking to each other, was recuperated as wasting time together socially on the internet, and it was absolutely, you know, bonding. It was really emotional. Um, on the other hand, when I'm also, the other part of your question is that I don't know what wasting time on the internet is. I don't think it, we can really say. We say we're wasting time on the internet, but, and sometimes we are. And at the same time, we're doing something that's, you know, equally profound and meaningful in another window. And we're usually toggling back and forth between the two. And oftentimes, like on a Facebook feed, they crash, the meaningful and the trivial. So it's the balance, uh, what, what the cultural critic Sien Nye calls the stuplime, which is a, uh, the idea of stup it's so stupid it's sublime, or it's so sublime that it's stupid. Uh, uh, the internet you know, can be sublime, or it, it can be stuplime. If it was just sublime, it wouldn't work. If it was just stupid, it wouldn't work. It's the combination of those two, stupidity and sublimity, that give it the uh, frisson. Yeah, you call it in the book a befuddling mix of logic and nonsense, which I think is a good way of putting it. Yeah, I think, I think the, one of the problems with moralizing the Internet is that we just tend to put a one-dimensional uh, notion on it, and it just is a multidimensional form. So I say, well, why not um, embrace the disjunction? This is something very hard for us to do. We want to always be on one side or another. But what if we, you know, what if we just said, yeah, it's both. That's really hard for people. I feel like the world has embraced that idea in a way. Like this story came out in 2014. And since then, I feel like, I mean, how, how do you feel about it, actually? Like, the, do you think that the class has changed a lot? Has it, the, the. Have you done the class more than once, yeah, by the way? Yeah. yeah, I have. And every time I do it, it's different because people are different. And I, there's no set pattern, and it always goes in a different way. I just taught the class for three weeks in Abu Dhabi at the NYU campus there. And that turned into a, um, uh, a, a, a kind of a situationist um, kind of rambling through 21st century architectural spaces in uh, Abu Dhabi, these incredibly weird spaces, and wasting time on the internet together in a 21st century space, very different than an Ivy League oak-paneled classroom. So depending on where you're doing it, something else is going to happen. It's, it's, but it's always magical. Right. I think Emmanuel raises a good point. Like, there was this time, and it may still exist today, where there was a lot of pearl-clutching and a lot of hand-wringing about the fact that we don't interact with each other enough anymore and we're always glued to our smartphones and the internet is making us meaner to each other. And I think 
we t when we talked about this in 2014, you wanted to push back against that idea. And that's something that you've pushed back against in the book as well. So do you think that there's still this idea that, you know, our smartphones are pulling us apart and time on the internet is wasted and perhaps bad for our brains in some way? You know, I think it's both. I, you know, I think it's bad. I think we waste time on the internet. I think it's incredibly emotional and incredibly uh, intellectually stimulating. It's both. It's sublime at the same moment. So I don't think I, we can we can we can fall on one side or the other. You know, then we fall into a mor morality trap, and it's just a technology after all. Technology is neutral. Do you think that that sort of uh, do you think it's worth asking the question then? Like, there's there's so much guilt associated with it. I feel that is possibly not uh, productive. To, to worry about the fact like I am on Facebook too often or I'm browsing Reddit, like this is a waste of my time. Whereas often you're learning a lot about a lot of different things or you're interacting with friends or you're sort of doing these things that humans have always done. Like I think you raised the point about reading and writing. Um, you know, we read Facebook, we read these articles that we click on, we type IMs to each other. Is that inherently a, a worse form of reading than reading a classic or writing a novel? Well, again, you know, I think it's just simply different. I don't want to moral moralize it. Um, and there's been an enormous amount of precedent in modernist literature that sets up the notion for uh, 140 characters. Let's just think about the Olympian constraint. In a sense, uh, everybody writing on Twitter is an Olympian constraint-based writer. So the Ulipo was a group of writers uh, mostly based in France in the 1970s uh, that were mostly mathematicians. And they, took a, they, they had the idea of working with language and, and literature as, as if they were mathematical formulas. And if you kind of set up the machine well enough and pour some good stuff into it, into that machine, something interesting is going to come out on the other side. So they had all sorts of constraints. Uh, most famously, uh, an Ulipian writer named Georges Perec uh, wrote an entire book without the novel, uh, sorry, wrote an entire book without the letter E. Um, and it was about the disappearance of the letter E with the letter E never used in the book. And what was an equally interesting uh, feat was the translation of that book into English without the letter E also. <laughs> I mean, which is just brilliant. And that, those kinds of kind of kind of games. And they would just make up what, you know, what are called constraints and all these rules. You can't do this. You, you know, uh, uh, palindromes and lipograms and all sorts of crazy, you know, basically word games. But so Twitter is, is, is a word game. You know, you have 140 characters to write. And what can you say in 140 characters? And can you say it beautifully? And can you say it concisely? And, and we've gotten very, very crafted. People say, you know, we don't have, we've lost the craft of writing. But crafting a 140-character tweet, a really good one, that really zings and hits on all sorts of level, actually takes a few revisions, we all, you know, some proofreading. I mean, it's f extremely careful writing. Sometimes I'll come up with a little jewel of a tweet, a literary jewel, like a haiku. Same thing, really, haiku, the notion of three lines, very, very compressed, newspaper headlines. You know, there's a whole, to the telegraph, there's a whole notion of compression in 20th century literature, most famously exemplified by Ernest Hemingway's famous six-word novel, For Sale, Baby Shoes, Never Worn. And that's a novel. He called that a novel. Amazing. What's, and, and, and if you tweet that, you've still got another 128 characters left uh, f of real estate. So we are writing, and we're, we're, we're writing 
tremendously and we're reading tremendously. It reminds me of in the 1980s, in like 89, right before the internet, um, the Whitney Museum did a show called Image World that predicted that we had given, we'd lost the textuality completely and we were given over to I images, television images. The whole thing was really about media, like glossy f magazines and images. And little did they realize that really right around the corner was the internet. And now the internet is comprised entirely of alphanumeric language. For example, if you've ever received a JPEG, in your email that doesn't render properly as a JPEG, what does it render as? It actually renders as alphanumeric code, the same identical material from which Shakespeare wrought his sonnets. So that every single piece of media on the internet is actually comprised entirely of language. This is, so when we, when we photograph, we're actually writing. It's a very, very strange notion, but it's actually true in ways that are masked. I, I, I will accept that as a proper form of writing. I always no no I love talking about this sort of thing and considering it in, in this way in this academic way the internet and how we interact with it and technology um, and we did a similar thing with memes a few weeks ago and I always wonder I worry I guess about being too academic with these sorts of topics like are, are we losing anything by taking this high concept of something that happens very organically and naturally I suppose I think the internet is under-theorized. You know, I think we're really, really good at using it. And I think we're really bad at knowing what we're doing with it. And it's really kind of crazy. Um, so that if you begin to become self-conscious of, of what we're doing and the apparatus surrounding it, not just the content, but all of the layers of apparatus around the web, um, I, th I just think it, you know, we can become more aware of what we're doing. And if you can couch it somehow theoretically and historically, you realize that this isn't coming out of a vacuum. It's been there all along. You know, you can trace it, you know, it goes, it can go even back centuries, uh, the same sort of impulse, um, me me mechanical writing, scribing. So I, I think we're really good at doing the fun part of the internet. And I think we're really poorly uh, educated about it. Is it? hard to uh, keep up with it from like an academic theoretical standpoint because it moves so fast as a form right like Twitter evolves so fast like the people who are good at Twitter are always like I feel like 10 years ahead of me in terms of uh, like what's clever what's funny but the thing is what you're examining is content and what I'm examining is everything outside of content the way distribution reception you know, writing, the sort of critical forms. So, you know, the content is always going to be sliding around, but the actual apparatus and the actual structure of it is pretty stable and, and, and has remained stable. I always think it's so strange that uh, uh, they made the web copyable and pasteable, and they still do, you know. And so, in other words, like, like, like all of this, all of all of uh, the, the sort of fake news stuff that we have, which is copied and pasted and then just replacing uh, adjectives with other adjectives, could have been prevented by locking up the web, so to speak. Remember Flash? Remember Flash website? Okay, and, and you, you, you'd, you'd want to go out to dinner to a, to a restaurant, and you'd want to get the address, and, and, and you hit a Flash site, you know, they got a Flash site, and you're trying to copy the address, but what do you do? You get out a piece of paper and a pencil, and you write it down on a piece of paper, right? Of course, that's, that's long gone, but they could have kind of done that with the web, and um, it would have, it would have, so in other words, the architecture of the web is actually pretty stable. It's just that, it's just the kind of 
guts of it that, that keep changing. It's like, it's like the body and the food that you're putting into the body. The body, you know, it, it comes in, it goes out, but the body itself is a rather stable structure. So Emmanuel was telling me before this that he worries that sometimes he runs out of internet. Can you explain that, um, yeah. what that means? I guess, um, well, this notion of just clicking around on the internet infinitely and that there's always more. I don't know how you waste time on the internet, um, but I find that like eventually I, I, I feel like I consumed everything that there is to mm -hmm. consume. And I, I know I'm a power user, like it's part of my, my job to, to go out and look for things on the internet. But do, do you find that it is really like an infinite well of stuff? That was my initial reaction, you know. Uh, uh, you know, what was it, 93 when I first kind of got online. Uh, that was my reaction. And, I, you know, you used to go surfing, you know. I'd just sit down and I'd go from one link to another and it would be, wow, and like, wow, man. You know, the, nothing was centralized. There's no Google. You just sort of have to kind of click around to find your way. And it was really like a situation, situationist derivé every time you'd get on. It was like, wow, man, I just lost three hours surfing. You know, we don't surf anymore. It's too, it's not rewarding the way that it once was. Uh, so what, what I tend to do you know, it's, it's curated through RSS feeds. Uh, t my Twitter, I, I click off of, uh, you know, Facebook comes up with, I've curated it, so it's, it's, it, it, it brings me to, the, brings the content that I like right in there, and I click off of it, and then I usually don't continue to surf. I go back to social media or RSS feeds, which, which drives me. So it's, it's kind of directed. And what strikes me as endless is my Twitter, as, I'm sorry, is my Facebook page. That is endless. I mean, you know, I'm maxed out with friends, right? So every time I pull down and I refresh my, my iPad, like a whole new world appears. It never is the same twice unless people are sharing it. I always get mad when I see the same Facebook or Instagram content, you know, hours later after I had originally seen it be because these algorithms are sort of locking it down or not locking it down, but affecting how we interact with it. Do you have that same reaction? Like, oh, I've already seen this. This is used content, and it's being refed to me. And and you know, it used. You know, it, even if it's something like a couple of hours ago, you roll your eyes and say, "Oh God, I saw that a couple of hours ago." God forbid yeah, you should. Still talking about that. God, God forbid <laughs> you should have retweeted retweeted something. Uh, you, you know, from even last week. Like, how did you miss that? Um, I think there are temporalities. I think we have to pay attention to temporality on the web. Um, um, hyper temporalities, um, you know, uh, uh, hyper presentism. There's a kind of a notion of of what of what the present actually means on the web, which is of course getting parsed smaller and smaller. But then there's another temporality. I mean, if I hit a long form journalism article, I will instapaper it and I will read it offline very carefully. On, say, on the train, on the way out here, I was reading my Instapaper. And they're long, intense articles. And I'm reading them, and I'm reading them really carefully. But the computer is not the place to do this. In the computer, is an active space. The temporality is hyper, temp you know, you just want to keep clicking around, and it's, it's, really, it's really neurotic. But there is space for long-form reading, and, and, and we do continue to do that. Um, and when everybody says, no, we don't read anymore, and we don't read long form, I, I just have to disagree with it. I see people engaged uh, on the subway, you know, as much as they're pl playing uh, uh, games, they're also reading uh, books. 
I, just because somebody's reading something on an electronic device doesn't mean it's garbage or it's just playing, playing junk. I mean, you know, it, who knows what people are reading? Do you feel like the way that we waste time on the Internet is an intimate thing, individual to each person? Or from teaching this class, have you learned that there's a pretty common method across people? Again, I don't know what wasting time is. I really am not 100% sure. When I am, you know, crawling through my Facebook fa page and half the things coming up about the current political situation, am I really wasting my time? I mean, I'm, I'm clicking onto things, I'm reading things, I'm, boy, are we informed. Can I rephrase that then? I just say wasting time in terms of like, I'm using my computer, I'm not, I don't have necessarily a task in mind, but I am checking email, Facebook, chatting, browsing the internet. I'm like looking for something. Like I, I don't, I'm sort of aimlessly using the computer in hopes of finding something that catches my attention or I'm at work and waiting for inputs and I need to, you know, give my input into a chat or a Facebook or tweet or notification or something like. I, I love this idea of waiting for something to find us rather than we finding it. And it reminds me of Marcel Duchamp who Duchamp said when he did not go looking for his urinal, the urinal found him. And that's kind of a surrealist idea, uh, the idea that, that, that our unconscious is actually guiding us. And I think a lot of the web is surrealism. I think a lot of the web is disjunction. A lot of the web um, you know, doesn't always make logical sense. And a lot of it is dream space. And I think we're enacting a lot of surrealist dream space as we kind of uh, walk through the world on our devices distracted. Now, the surrealists love distraction. They want to split attention span. They want an unconscious. They love sleep. They love sleep talking. And they love zombies. And they love sleepwalking. So Andre Breton would be thrilled at watching everybody walk around glued, you know, being both present and not present. So do you not feel guilt ever? Uh, just like sort of self-loathing at, at your internet behavior or your internet consumption? I don't. I mean, I find it really, I find it really connected. I find it really empowering. I find it really smart. I think I'm a better person. I think I'm a smarter person. I think I'm a more connected person. They say that we're losing the uh, sociability, but I think the internet as it is now is hyper social. All we're doing is communicating with other people. Yeah, yeah. You know? but sometimes I think uh, like I need to not, I mean, I need everybody to shut up kind of like and, and I don't feel like I'm wasting time. I don't feel like it's a waste of time because uh, I am always gathering stuff for a story. I'm putting more information in my brain. I'm seeing interesting things. It's all it's all good. But you, you never catch yourself like I caught myself walking a dog. And I think the entire walk I was on my phone on Twitter and I felt so guilty that I, I deleted Twitter. So that did feel like m maybe I need to log off. But what's so what's so interesting about walking a dog? Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I look up and I'm like, oh, it's nice here. It's like it's a nice day. Like winter is over. It's, it's, it's good to like see people in the face. Like there's, there are kids playing. It felt good. I felt good. Yeah, but, but, you, but you do that anyway. And then, you know, let's imagine that you're walking the dog before you had the Internet. 
you'd look at the, the, the sky, you'd look at the trees, you'd look at somebody in the face, and then you'd start thinking about what you're going to have for lunch or who you're going to have sex with tonight. So the fact of the matter is that you're not really always all there. This notion of like hyper-present all the time in real life beats being on the web. That's just not true. My students are just constantly distracted, whether, I, whether they have computers in front of them or not. They're half listening to me. So now you're half listening, there's a device there. I don't see the difference, honestly. Have you ever done a digital detox? No. <laughs> no, I, I find that I, that's not surprising because I think in your book you sort of made fun of the idea. Um, and every once in a while, I, I know that I will never become less reliant on my phone or the computer. But from time to time, I purposely leave my phone at home and go do something for a couple hours. And this is not that often, but every once in a while I do it. And I do find myself thinking about what's happening on the internet like i'm missing the internet and so i don't know that i'm like more connected with the world well that's what i I say in the book i talk about this woman who writes about going on a digital detox to a remote island uh you know but the only thing that she can do is think about everything through the metaphor of the web and she said i listen to birds without the necessity of having to tweet i saw a beautiful car and went to grab my phone without and I realized I couldn't Instagram it everything was phrased you know so that she might have left her phone at home but her brain had been rewired differently which I don't think is a bad thing because every new technology uh, rewires the brain in a new way tell you know like my father used to say to me you know you kids are watching too much television in the 1960s when I was a kid we watched you know we used to listen to radio we didn't have images we had to make all the images in our heads and look at you kids wasting your time rotting there in front of the TV in the 1960s right the same morality that you know it might be very easy for me to apply to my kids on on the web and you know what I'm connected I'm smart I survived but it was different and I processed the world differently so it took somebody like Marshall McLuhan who came from a radio culture to theorize television. And in a weird way, it may take people my age coming from a television culture to be able to theorize the internet because once you're in media deep, it's really hard to step back and theorize it because you have nothing to compare it to. It's just the, the air. You're gonna, you can't theorize the air, you know. So that's, that's kind of the role that the, the book plays a little bit, some part of it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. What have you learned about humans from paying attention to this stuff? Well, I, I think that I learned in those classes um, that our devices can bring us closer together um, if we use them communally. The problem is we really don't use them communally in a room. When was the last time six people, six of your pals, got together in a room and wasted time on the Internet as a group? We do it every day. It's our job. Yeah, it's your job. But it's not. But you, it's actually not because you're not wasting time and you're getting paid and it's your job. So you guys are kind of strange. But what about, you know, like on a Sunday afternoon? Let's get together, you know, we could just get two more people in this room and let's just open up our computers and be together wasting time on the Internet together. You'll 
see that it's like meet space social media. Memes start to fire from one body to another very, very connectedly when you're all open and open to each other and open to your devices. It's absolutely, um, it's really almost life-changing, I'd say. Yeah, so I touched on this a little bit earlier, but I feel like the way that people use their computers and phones is interesting. Like, I like watching other people surf the internet. I think I find it fascinating. I like seeing what they're doing on their screens. Um, I like comparing it to, like, my habits and whether they're, you know, going to the same place I'm going or whether they, like, click their cursors on different texts, like, while they're reading it and stuff like that. Um, But it's something you don't get to see that often. And people find it very intrusive, I think, or many people often find it intrusive if you don't let them know what's happening. And I sit next to Emmanuel here, uh, and I often just watch him, like I read his chats, I see what he's going, I see what he's doing on the computer. And this is like a very taboo and like not okay thing for a lot of people. And like I've told Emmanuel I'm doing this, I'm like, I can't help myself, your computer's angled at me, I'm just gonna watch what you do sometimes. And he, like, he has said he's fine with it. And what have you seen? What have you learned? Like you chat with Angela a lot, your girlfriend, not too much. Um, you're often working, which is good. Like you're often on uh, Google Docs scrolling around. Wait a minute, but listen to you like just that. said, which is good. So this all is morality. <laughs> well, it's good, because, it's good because we're at work and ostensibly. I know, but you're, 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 you're moralizing his time. And you're evaluating his time, just but just by that one little sentence, that's good. Yeah. But this is, you know, Angela, yeah, Angela, you chat, but you don't chat too much. You know, there's all this evaluative stuff going well, on. Well, I definitely have days here in which I am completely locked into completing a task that will bring value to Vice, the company. And then there are other days in which, uh, you know, I'm sort of aimlessly going through the motions of like searching for something and and i think that brings value to vice the company too because if i'm like deep on reddit i often find things that i use in articles later but i i guess i do moralize it because i do feel a little guilty sometimes like oh i'm just chatting with my friends a lot on gchat today i'm not writing so much for the website and i think that you know, there, there are other workplaces, Vice doesn't do this, but there are other workplaces that monitor your internet use and monitor your chats and lock, lock down, certain lock certain sites. And we don't do that because we need to see stuff. Like if broadly the, the uh, women's site is behind us and if they turned around, like they would see all sorts of crazy things that motherboard. Yeah, but Vice, you know, Vice travels in Vice. So, yeah. you know, you can't, you, you, no, you know, you can't not. lock it down. But, you know, the funny thing is I run these big seminars where we're, up to 400 people get together and waste time on the internet together. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that I do, it's sort of toward the end of a big bonding thing, and a room becomes very like a yoga studio, very electric and very harmonious. Um, I call people up and I say, would anybody like to just waste time on the internet in front of us? And they, you know, there's a, a laptop with a giant screen behind. And a person comes up and they begin performing what they normally do on the web. Sometimes it's really self-conscious. They put on a big act. They hit sites that make them look smarter, which is really interesting because they're doing it publicly. And other times, the whole thing becomes really organic. People just kind of flipping between two or three things, uh, very gently kind of rolling and scrolling. And you can see, as, the, as, you, know, with the, as you said, where the, where the cursor moves, you can actually see where the mind is moving. And you, know, you can see... You can see if something's hovering over something very sh- for, for a minute and then moves on, slows down, speeds up, you can actually kind of get an insight into that person's 
a, a mind, finally. Um, and I think that this is about the body connecting with the mind. And the ideal computing situation is a computer that is as fast as your mind, which are they, we're still not there yet. I was, am, am waiting for that. Uses <laughs> uh, too many resources. Yeah, and, 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 so, and so I don't want to say that, you know, the body is completely involved um, when we're surfing the web. For example, if you had told me 20 years ago that I would be signing a credit card slip with the tip of my finger. You know, that's really, that's really biometric. That's really, that, that's so tactile. As, as, as the web becomes more sensitive to various forms of touch, that the body, and there's one thing mobile computing has given us our body back. Used to be years ago, I was all, if I was in front of the computer, I was wasting my time online. And there was no body, it was disembodied. But now, of course, the mobile computing actually gives me my body back into a space to navigate my locality and also to be online. In, in a sense, it's given us back our sense of meat space. It's given us our, our, our sense of, of you know, the body back into it again. The, the thing you're describing about like, being on a stage and doing what you do, wasting time on the internet, on stage, it's just so, it sounds so intimate. It's like one of the most intimate things I, can, I think you can do publicly. And I feel like, how, how do you know that the people who are doing that are actually being honest? Because as people who look at traffic, yeah. there is a huge gap between what people sort of perform, how they perform their interest and what they actually click on. Like, how do you know that people are actually being? They're not, I, I, I you know, oftentimes they're not. I, 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 in Can the you book, tell when yeah. Sure. I went one time in a book. You know, in the book, I talk about this kind of you know hipster kid. Looks like a graduate student. You know, with thick horn rimmed glasses, messy hair. Comes up, and the first thing he does is he goes to YouTube and he turns on a Schoenberg string quartet, right? <laughs> and then he goes to an academic site and downloads a Deleuze article. You know, and everybody begins rolling their eyes, like, "Come on, you know, you you, you know, this is just so pretentious." And on the other hand, it's probably partially authentic. Part of him loves this and knows it, and part of it is artificial. So that, that, that notion of what is authentic and what is artificial, I think, is a really hard line to draw on the web. I think there is a certain type of person, uh, myself included, that wants to push the boundaries of where the internet goes um, in terms of you want to find like the weird corners of it. Like That's part of our job, is discovering like what the people are doing on the internet that you know it isn't facebook or it isn't like newyorktimes.com like the deeper darker corners what is going on there um do you think that is a natural instinct for humans to have like where does this thing end and how do i get there and what what is happening there what is it uh, uh, you know congratulations you have reached the last page of the internet now turn off your computer and go outside for a walk you, you know that's that page, end, of yeah, course, the end of the internet. Right, yeah. yeah, yeah. And also the start page of the internet. So, I mean, you know, there's, there's notions of, um, of, of and, and, and in a sense, you know, look, the internet is finite. It is finite. It feels infinite. It has the illusion of infinity, but in fact it is finite. It's like a, you know, a video game that feels infinite, but finally those moves get played out. Um, and, and although the, the, I don't think we're ever going to be able to keep up with what's going on there. It's still actually, it is not an infinite resource. It is a finite resource. I think that's honest. Yeah, that's also another thing is when I find that I need to put my phone down is where I do hit the wall and 
after I even push past the wall and find another dark corner and I see everything that there is to see there, I'm like, there's actually more interesting things to see not on my phone than there are on my phone. Like if I go and I meet someone and talk to him. It also unlocks other corners of the internet that you wouldn't be able to find had this, had you not talked about it, maybe. I don't know, but you know, when I'm having a drink with a friend in a bar, we're face-to-face conversation, it's intimate, it's great, and then suddenly somebody's phone is on the bar, it goes off, and somebody says, excuse me for a second, and then I look at my phone, we kind of text a little bit, and then put the phone back down and continue talking. It's always a mix. I don't think it's either or. Yeah. Yeah. I think, but like you say, there's the, the illusion that the internet is infinite, and everything is on the internet. But that's not true. Like you'll you'll go to the Met once and you'll see something that you've never heard about, and it's like. I know, but the Met the Met has the feeling of being infinite. I mean, the library. I mean, have you read every book in the library? No, no but I know that there's stuff in the library that's not on the internet. That's that's what I have discovered, and is 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 when I usually think it's time to log off. So the idea, you know, the the sort of the sort of idea then then filtering these things is not that much different than ideas of, of, say, writing academic papers in the past. You know, we expect everybody to be completely original, but really good books were always comprised of other people's ideas that were recombined in completely original ways, which makes one writer better than another. Nobody begins at zero. It's a shared culture, and it's a recombined culture, and these sort of notions of authenticity and originality, particularly in the digital space, are um, spurious at best, uh, you know, and and again, every, when everything is cut and pasteable, the kind of idea that you're going to ever be original um, or even need to be original anymore in that old-fashioned way, I think, is kind of an old-fashioned idea. Do you feel like you keep up with the new ways people interact with the internet? Like I, I know you said it's just a change in content and. The, human behaviors are quite similar, but there's always something that the teens are doing that maybe other people don't know about. And, and do you feel like you know what's happening on the internet right now? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, I think for me, I'm, I'm paying attention to the more titanic changes, you know, the, the, from, the, from the web to social media, let's say. Um, from desktop computing to mobile computing. And those things, you know, seem to be pretty much, you know, I tend to get a 10,000-foot view on it rather than, than getting deep inside of it. Um, and it strikes me that Snapchat is a variant on Instagram. You know, I mean, you know, again. I, I, uh, so I, I tend, to, tend to kind of, again, I'm, I'm a structuralist, and I'm an anti-humanist. You know, I, pref- I prefer... I prefer machines to people, and uh, I'm I'm very happy to. I'm analytical. I like to analyze systems rather than get get into the muck of emotion. So, if people at home want to maybe do some of the exercises that you do in your class, are there any that you can describe to us real quick that they can do with their friends or family? So, my class came up with a listicle, which is at the end of the book of a hundred and one way is to waste time on the internet. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm just opening up one. Uh, 
Sit in a circle with a group and open your laptops. Plug your headphones into the computer to your right. Play music for your partner with this goal. Make the listening environment as annoying as possible. Play music the person hates. Play several songs at once. <laughs> 12. Browse only using the earliest version of Internet Explorer you can find for as long as you can. You may not close any pop-ups or tabs that appear. You know, we would do, I mean, we would do things like um, in a group. Uh, we would sit in a circle with our laptops, and we would pass our laptop to the person next to us. And you have five minutes to open up anything on that laptop. Anything is open. You may open it. You may not delete. You may not alter. But And any window that you open, you have to leave open. And then that laptop gets passed around to the person to their left. And your laptop gets touched by 15 people, and they see everything. And then when it comes back to you, all of your windows are open that everybody has seen. And it sounds horrifying, doesn't it? It does, yeah. I feel like no one could find anything on mine, though. It's just like such a mess. Well, and, and that's kind of it. You know, in, in the end, it's sort of the same jumble of data. You know, when mine came back to me, you know, my students were, you know, what was, there were, you know, there were searches for porn. There were searches for sex. There was my, my most recent manuscript was open. Of course, all my iPhotos were open. Um, but, in, you know, in the end, they really didn't discover anything. Uh, we notched that up a little bit, and then we would have these things called data duels, where two people would swap computers, laptops, stand back to back, walk 10 paces, turn, face each other, and have 30 seconds to delete any file on that laptop. Empty the trash and give the computer back to the other person. Now, I did this several times. To this day, I still have not a clue what I lost, you know. I was reading, I read that last night in the book that you did this experiment, and I, it reminds me of something that happened to me in when I was in college. I was at my girlfriend's house at the time, and I took a shower, and I came back, and I had suddenly like 15 or 20 friend requests. And like while I was in the shower, she had deleted every friend that she had unfriended everyone on my Facebook as like a joke. And I was really mad at first, uh, but then I was, I was like, wow, I don't even... It was interesting because all these people who I had never talked to in a, in a long time started like refriending me, and I was like, "Oh, I don't even remember who you were." And there's other people who I don't I don't know. I never became friends with them again because they were just lost. It's such a great gesture. She sounds like a wonderful woman. Yeah, no, I mean it was it was funny. It like it was, she, we did we like pranked each other like that quite often. Well, so I you know like, what I do is often with 400 people in the room, I have everybody open up their laptops to their Facebook page, and I say for the next half hour, you may go and put anything into anybody's status update that you like, okay. <laughs> And it's just, it wreaks havoc, you know, phones start ringing, mothers are like, darling, you've been hacked, you know. Yeah, that's the thing. It was like, it was a very, it was a digital thing that she did, but then suddenly I'd like texts and calls and like refriending, and it's like, why did you unfriend me? Are you mad at me? And it, it's just interesting that every, like, there is an organization to the internet or there's this expectation of uh, or, order, orderliness. And the moment that there was chaos, there was a very like real reaction from people. I think. Yeah, it's emotional, you know, and that's the other thing. They say, oh, you know, we're becoming cold, we're becoming disconnected. I, I, I find the whole thing to be hyper, hyper emotional, um, which is never really commented upon. Perhaps, you know, sometimes on Facebook th threads, things can get kind of hot. 
but I actually just kind of think they're, they, I'm trying to remember the name of, of uh, the woman who says, you know, that we have no, fi- the, the Harvard uh, historian that the New York Times loves so much that says we've lost the ability to have face-to-face conversations. Um, blah, 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 blah. She, I, yeah. I it's, I mean, um, I feel like that's been done many times or said many times. Yeah, and, and you keep kind of reading that same thing. But in a, in a sense, it's, it's, it's sort of like, what is Skype? Is Skype not face-to-face somehow? Also, the notion is like that we are becoming less sensitive to people's emotions or needs or anything. But I would say that actually we have developed way more complicated, way more sensitive rules, right? Like once you're on Twitter and you, Jason, I don't know if you know this, but Jason unfollowed like 800 people recently. (laughs) And I'm sure that, I mean, that like if he unfollowed me, that would hurt my feelings. You know what I mean? So we created all these other ways. Like people are more sensitive. So what I'm saying, you can tweet the wrong thing. You can like the wrong thing. You can follow the wrong person. You can unfollow the wrong person. And I believe the whole web functions on affect, you know, affect theory, and sort of the idea of anticipatory behaviors and responses. So affect theory says affect is a pre-emotion. Affect is when you're nervous, but you don't look nervous, but your palms are sweating. Affect is the feeling when you walk into a room and everybody looks normal, but the tension is so thick in that room that you could cut it with a knife. This sort of feeling and and what affect is is when you're texting and somebody's texting back to you and those three dots are moving and that is that moment. It's this interval between things that creates effectual tension which is absolutely fascinating. The, The web is not immediate. There's this interval, a pregnant interval of affect which depending on what comes back to you, could potentially explode into emotion, full-blown emotion, or it can stay on a very high, intense, effectual level, okay? And so when I send a job resume to somebody, my effectual state is anticipation. When I received that response back, that effectual state will, flip over either into devastation or joy and elation, true emotion. So in this way, like the web is telepathic. We're telepathic. I think we're very sensitive. We're reading minds. When I am writing to 80,000 people on a Twitter feed that I run, I am trying to anticipate in a ridiculous way what 80,000 people are going to respond. I'm going to try to craft something that will not get me killed, <laughs> that will not elicit death threats. You know, I'm very conscious. Now, this is, a, this is an unprecedented state. I mean, it used to only be despots and, you know, Fidel Castro and Mao could speak to 80,000 people at one time, but now everybody is doing that. And the power structure was different between <laughs> Fidel Castro and his subjugants and... Yeah, they couldn't, yeah, they couldn't yeah. come back, you know, they, yeah. couldn't co- they couldn't come back like that. They were suppressed. So the point is, is that I think uh, uh, Emmanuel, that your 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 idea is right. I think we're hyper hyper sensitive. We try to be telepathic. We try to be considerate of what the other person is going to be feeling as a response to what we do. And if you don't do that, you're going to get clobbered, and you're going to start to do that. I mean, getting trolled and getting spammed and getting hate is a great way of 
becoming a bit more sensitive. Say, well, you know what, I don't want to do that again. Maybe I should think twice about what people are going to say before I tweet this thing. Or I want to do it all the time because <laughs> I enjoy yeah, <laughs> that reaction. Like it, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's also this sense of you, you put out something that you may expect a response or that you think that the people who are following you will respond to or do something to and then nothing happens and there's you're in this effective state and then nothing happens and that's just as bad and maybe just as devastating so yeah so 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 all of that is like wow i I better try to connect a little bit better i better maybe say something that is a little bit more provocative or a little bit more important but perhaps not too provocative i'm not talking about anonymous all right trolls and i'm talking about kind of reasonable people that use the web uh under their own name um, I, I think it's, uh, yeah, I think it's a very, cons- you know, considered and hypersensitive environment. This is not bad. In that sense, do you think that the group shapes the behavior of itself? I think that Twitter, uh, for example, comes with no rules. And, you know, rules have evolved. You know, uh, you, learn, you, you learned by the rules of the community. Get that kind of hate, you might want to kind of, reel back a little bit on what you're doing or maybe even push a little bit harder. Uh, there are all sorts of rules on Twitter. I remember, um, I guess it was Joyce Carol Oates that once tweeted out, but doesn't ISIS have any joy in their lives? And she kind of meant like, they, you know, a humanist idea that, you know, listen, these guys are monsters, but they have to have joy. Of course, everybody's like, yeah, their joy is like throwing gay people off the tops of buildings, you know. So, so, so she got, you know, all sorts of, the irony came in very hard and she was wrong she didn't get the she she phrased the question in a naive way and she was not playing by the rules of twitter and she got killed by twitter so well i could definitely talk about this for several more hours i think but we've got to get out of this room um thank you so much for coming by this was great really interesting conversation i hope everyone else thought that too (laughs) the book is called wasting time on the internet by kenneth goldsmith and uh, I'm Jason Kebler. I'm here with Emmanuel Myberg. Our producer is Tim Barnes. And if you haven't already, please check out Plus Plus Podcast, which is our other podcast. It's more of a produced narrative type story. It's brand new. If you want to find it on iTunes, it's Plus Plus Podcast. Spell it out, all lowercase, and it's all one word, which uh, we made it as hard to search as possible. But it's Plus Plus Podcast, all one word. And this is Radio Motherboard. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.